guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about K-Town for All suing the city of Los Angeles, No Olympics LA traveling over to Tokyo, and a bunch of other updates about the cops, some big climate wins that we've seen recently, and at some point we're going to be doing a bunch more variety in these recordings. We, we really do promise, but we're going to be focusing primarily on the cops this week because we really uh, have been letting them kind of slide for a little bit, and uh, yeah, they, they, there's some... There's some shenanigans that have been going on, and we got to talk about it. How's it going, Bushido? It, it, good. I mean, I also like being the only folks in L.A. who want to hold the cops accountable. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a dirty job, but we're going to do it. Uh, I've had a pretty decent weekend of, like, uh, organizing. I don't know, man. Maya Lau is definitely doing it, too. But True. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I've had a pretty decent weekend of uh, organizing and stuff. I went out on Saturday and did some canvassing with DSA Phoenix. Uh, oh, well, nice. not really canvassing, but we were tabling for Bernie, uh, which was cool because it was 112 years old. 112 years old. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna leave that one in. It was 112 <laughs> degrees out, oh, that is uh, so which was not. fantastic oh. because it was also humid. Uh, and all I can say oh. is everybody complains about the weather, but nobody ever does anything about it. <laughs> and so the first candidate that promises to fix that definitely has my vote like for the rest of my life. Uh, and then today I was out knocking doors for a uh, Tempe City Council candidate. Uh, and it's interesting knocking doors in... Places like uh, like Phoenix and Tempe, uh, because it's the same as like when I was knocking doors in, in Border Ranch for Katie Hill, where I get a lot of people in what's like a traditionally Republican stronghold, where they like they would open the door and they'd be like, I don't know anything about her, and I'd be like, she's a Democrat, and they're like, oh, give me the clipboard. Uh, so that's the easiest way to get somebody to open a door. But then they do this weird like, so are there like other Democrats around here? And I'm like, yeah, a lot of your neighborhoods apparently because they're all on my list and we're only like hitting doors of, of registered Democrats. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of people who live in like formerly Republican places who don't realize that their neighborhood isn't as scary as they think that it's going to be. Uh, and that reminds me actually, speaking of knocking doors, uh, the election for CD12 between uh, Lorraine Lundquist and uh, sex pest uh, John Lee <laughs> is coming up. Well, you know what? I'll say alleged sex pest alleged. just to not get us in alleged trouble. Alleged sex pest. Yes, alleged. Uh, but that's coming up on August 13th. Yes, so it you've is. got about two weekends left to knock some doors up there and help make sure that we turn this one out for Lorraine. Uh, she came in first in kind of a nail biter primary, but we're hoping we can replicate that and like by leaps and bounds this time. It seems like she's pretty comfortably sitting in a really good position to win this one, but every single door that we knock is going to increase the chances that Lorraine ends up on city council. And instead of getting another Republican up there, we're going to get a climate scientist and a community activist and someone who actually will move to shut down Aliso Canyon. And as we're going to discuss today in a little bit, like having a more progressive person on city council is going to matter a lot. And she's picked up a couple of city council nominations and a bunch of other big, uh, sorry, endorsements and a couple of other big endorsements from people in LA. Uh, and so, if you're looking for something to do over the next couple of weekends and you want to go for a walk and you don't mind working up a bit of a sweat, uh, Porter Ranch and all of CD12 could really use your help. So you can always head over to Ground Game's Facebook page to find out about the uh, canvases that we have planned. Or if you want to go work with the campaign directly, you can head over to LorraineForLA.com and they've got phone banking shifts. They've got text banking shifts. Uh, they've also got door knocking shifts. So there's plenty of ways for you, for you to get involved. Uh, but before we move on to the news, uh, we are a little bit 
late this week as we have been on a, a couple of the fault. last weeks because we've got, yeah, but why is it your fault, Chris? Explain yourself to the people. Well, so to, to really, to touch base on what you were just talking about, the reason why we're actually recording this later than I had wanted to today is because I was actually just out there knocking on doors for Lorraine and actually uh, Hayes Davenport of LA podcast fame in terms of uh, the circles in which we ride. Uh, he was out there with us along with a whole mess of other volunteers, including uh, Jane from K-Town for All, you know, the glowing stars on Twitter, which uh, you should all be following, as well as the rest of the K-Town for All crew. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun, folks. Um, but yeah, so we, we, uh, we were up there knocking doors in Porter Ranch, uh, like Porter Ranch proper today. Um, the number of people who, when you talk about like the Aliso Canyon thing, they're like, yeah, so there was this big gas leak and they like, they all are like, yeah, know about that one. They start nodding their heads. You're like, okay, cool. We definitely have something to talk about here. Uh, and you know, it's, it's the point that you made about the people who do not realize, um, who the other Democrats versus Republicans are in their proximity, um, I actually ran into a, uh, a woman who answered the door and was uh, asked us about uh, her neighbor if we had if we had uh, knocked on their door because she's like, oh yeah, they should definitely be supporting. They're both Democrats, and we uh, we we regretted to inform her that at least the the husband in that situation had uh, shooed us away as he closed the door in our face, saying, oh no no, I'm going with the other guy. So. Uh, it's you interesting. Know, it's always the husband in my in, in my experience. Like it's always when the husband opens the door. That's always when I'm like, oh, this dude's gonna say no. Well, so um, but, which I don't know what that says about the the genders, but <laughs> you know, it, if you're if you're knocking doors, I find it is much easier if like younger or. Uh, women open the door. They seem to be like much more swayable or at least willing to listen to you. I get a lot of guys that are like, you know, no solicitors. And you're like, I'm not a solicitor. Yeah, we're here to There's a difference here. <laughs> we're not selling anything, bud. Um, but the really fun thing was that we, we were knocking the door uh, on the house across the street and we actually saw the car from that house drive away, but we couldn't tell if it was the husband. So we're like, uh, maybe we shouldn't go knock. We should, I, I, we were contemplating whether or not to go back to the house and see if we could get a hold of the wife and talk to her. Uh, and that we decided that that was probably not the best optics if we came back, you know, 15 minutes after we had left to be like, hey, oh, nope, it wasn't you that just left. It was actually your wife. So, but it was fun. Um, but the reason why things have gotten really chaotic for me lately is that I actually was driving the uh, the lead van in the Bernie Sanders motorcade uh, as it made its way around the entire city of Los Angeles over the last few days. Uh, so, you know, got to pick him up at the airport on Wednesday, got to take him back to the airport on Saturday morning, uh, got to drive him all over the place on Thursday and on Friday. It was uh, some of the most interesting driving I have ever done in my life. Uh, definitely the most like blocking a lane to make sure that people can get out safely. Uh, and, and just, you know, uh, owning the situation. It was, it was a, a, a quite an experience and a, a lot of, a lot of fun, but also totally exhausting. I mean, that, I do not know where Bernie gets the energy from, but he is a machine and he is going it's from insane. Oh yeah. It, it's so Nina, Nina Turner also is a national treasure and she and Jane, both uh, Jane Sanders, uh, we must protect them all at all costs. Um, but 
Nina Turner made a great point when we were, uh, we actually got to hang out backstage at the Santa Monica rally. So if you guys saw us uh, in the background there, that's because we were the drivers and had to, you know, go back and let people into the car. Um, but the, uh, the comment that Nina Turner made on stage that was so cool was she's just like, look, anybody who says, anybody who's worried about Bernie being too old, I had to switch out of three inch heels and get into the Skechers in order to keep up with him. And, and then she's showing off her shoes under, huh. under, pantsuit and it was just like yeah that's exactly he just keeps going he doesn't stop it's absolutely insane um and his staff absolutely love him and i i i i'm i was already team bernie before but now i am just utterly convinced that this man must become our next president end of story uh it was a fantastic experience i'm so happy i got to do it and uh we apologize for the fact that this podcast is delayed because i have not had time to breathe for the last few days <laughs> you're only forgiven if bernie wins like that's the only condition of your- <laughs> <laughs> eh, whatever it's still worth it yeah, no, and, and for those of you listening, uh, if you do want to make sure that Bernie wins the California primary this time, uh, you don't have to be registered as a Democrat, but it definitely helps if you do. It just makes the process a lot easier. Uh, also, because we're switching the way that California does uh, voting and stuff, and we'll talk about this closer to the primary, but you, if you're getting a mail-in ballot, you have to request by, like, I believe January to get the Democratic ballot mailed to you. If not, they're going to send you a nonpartisan ballot, which won't include either. Uh, well, basically, won't include the the Democratic field of candidates. So uh, make sure you look into that. You can check with the uh, either county registrar in Los Angeles County or with the Secretary of State. Uh, but let's go ahead and move on to the news. So uh, one of my least favorite ordinances. Uh, from City Hall, and not that I could name any of my favorite ordinances from City Hall. <laughs> I was going to say, but one of my where's least the contrapositive favorite, here? Yeah. <laughs> but one of my least favorite is uh, 8502, which has to do with living in vehicles. And this one's yeah. gone through uh, several short-term sort of like extensions to keep it up to date. But it's coming up for uh, some sort of action on Tuesday. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so this is the uh, 8502 is uh, 85.02. Uh, everyone just refers to it as 8502. It's the car sleep sleeping ordinance. So uh, this is the law that prohibits you from sleeping in your car, and it expired at the beginning of July. Councilman Mitch O'Farrell from CD13 introduced a motion um, back in June to extend this by a further six months, as is the tradition with this law, but there has not been any action on the motion since then. So technically it has expired. Yeah, and they they wanted to do something about it before the summer recess that they went on, the city council, that is, and they didn't really get around to it. And I still, I I haven't done enough research, but for some reason, the six-month extension gets them around some lawsuits and stuff so that they don't make it like a permanent law. But the the six-month extension allows them to just uh, get a report from the L.A. City Attorney's Office that recommends extending it by six months, and then they just sort of adopt that unanimously and then have to come back and do it again in six months. Um, because they're like they a, don't want to do <laughs> away with this ordinance. On? They want to keep criminalizing people, but at the same time, they're also uh, like too cowardly to pick this full fight. So it's a little bit of a weird situation. But again, like we're going to see this fight again in January slash February of 2020, and then we'll see it again in July August of 2020. So expect to be hearing about this one for a while, and expect to have several times to uh, get up in front of the mic and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. So this Tuesday morning, the motion is 
is making its way into the city council's general session and uh, we'll be presented with an opportunity at that time to offer up public comment on the rule and how inhumane it really is. Uh, I'm going to be there. I know that some folks from K-Town for All are going to be there and we'd love to see you guys there too. So if you can make it, uh, City Hall, uh, the address, it's on Spring Street at first. No, it's, is it Spring Street and first? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's where the lawn. The lawn is on. I mean, that's where the, the corner of the lawn is. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's or Main it's, Street, like the the <laughs> the the entrance for the public's on Main. Correct. Yeah. So it's on Main Street. It's really hard to miss. It's the big white building that looks like a temple on the top and kind of like an obelisk. Uh, you should know where City if, Hall if is. If you watched, uh, yeah, if you watched uh, Parks and Rec, it's what they used as the exterior shots. Did for they really? Parks and Rec. Huh. Yeah, it is. Because they'd show, show the outside where it actually. says City Hall, and they'd use that shot for Parks and Rec, and then like <laughs> cut to some other random building. But I always thought it was funny, because they'd show it, and they're like, somewhere in like Oklahoma, or whatever flyover state that show was, was supposed to be set in. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, no, that's clearly LA City Hall. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that's fun about living in Los Angeles is that you realize that all of these places and movies that are supposed to be set in other cities, nah, it's actually part of LA, because it's just easier to film here. <sighs> or you go through what I went through last year, which is where Quentin Tarantino tries to take the city back in time like 50 years oh, and messes yeah. up your commute by shooting down Hollywood Boulevard for like That's a few days right. at a time. And suddenly your buses aren't running on time and you're having to walk all the way to another red line station because it takes effing I forever to get there. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not a fan of Tarantino movies, and I know that's going to cost me some listeners, <laughs> but uh, I, I've Old heard stands. that uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood isn't terrible, but just out of pure vindictive spite over my commute, I will not be seeing it in theaters. Also, Tarantino has enough money, so yep, um, I, I feel perfectly okay waiting for that one to come totally to Netflix. Totally fair, totally fair. Um, but speaking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, let us talk about <laughs> is, our boys is, in blue. That is a very harsh transition, man. <laughs> well, so I, I'm hoping you all saw the Twitter video that went like pretty big viral of people splashing NYPD with water. And as an update on that one, uh, the one of the God. men in that video who splashed water on the cops decided to turn himself in, uh, not realizing or I guess not expecting that the uh, assistant district attorney was going to throw the effing book at him. Oh, uh, yeah, the district no, attorney claimed insane. that throwing water on these two NYPD patrol officers uh, damaged $250 worth of Kevlar vests, which I didn't know what? The water could defeat on? Kevlar. I, yeah, I, no, I got into an argument on Twitter with somebody who was like, he could destroy their radios. And I'm like, no, he can't. The, the, this, the radios can resist water. And he's like, how do you know that? Because they, they work in the rain. They're cops. Yeah, Come I, on. Know, I know. What the but hell? So, but so the guy is being charged with a felony for destroying oh, two Kevlar vests no. with water. And he's been slapped with a $3,500 bail. Now, let's not forget what? that it was about two weeks ago that Palantino, the guy who literally choked out Eric Garner to death, was absolved of any charges at a federal level. So oh splashing cops with water is a more harsh penalty, even in a pre-trial like, uh, context, than literally murdering a man over loose cigarettes. So This is why cash bail needs to just go away. End of story. There should not be any cash bail. It's just so... yeah. 
Jesus. Well, especially when the guy, when he turns himself in and it's like, if the point of cash bail is to compel somebody to show up and like meet their duties before yeah. the court, this guy clearly has yeah. already decided to, to do that. Exactly. Um, but you know, let's, let, let's hop coasts here and let's Jeez. talk about some of the, the news in LA policing that we've uh, missed oh, yeah. over the last couple <laughs> of weeks. Cause there's been, uh, there's been some doozies. And I do want to say like, before we get into this, just so we're not like super cold hearted, there was an off duty LAPD officer who was shot shot after apparently calling out some taggers and like that kind of random violence against anyone even if they're a police officer is not something to be like celebrated no, or excited by you know like our stance as a sh as a show and like my stance as sort of like uh, a communist is that we don't need that kind of violence anywhere in no, society absolutely not. so you know before we launch into this you know I don't want to frame us as being like super ghoulish like don't go around murdering cops who are trying to get tacos like just let people get tacos it's okay Okay. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about this recent arrest uh, of an LAPD officer in a really strange, like, cold case kind of style. Like, this is well, this case is quite a, a roller coaster. It, it is. So it's it's a it's a hot and cold case kind of combination thing going on here. So, according to a news release from the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office last Tuesday, William Rodriguez, 33, was arrested and charged with two counts of forcible rape with a special alleg uh, allegation of multiple victims. Uh, Rodriguez is a 10-year veteran of the LAPD. Uh, police were investigating a recent rape allegation that had been made against him when they entered entered his DNA into the FBI's combined DNA index system. That system then returned a quote-unquote cold hit on a sexual assault that occurred in August of 2015 with a different victim. LAPD Captain and Giselle Espinosa told the LA Times that, quote, we know only of these two, but like with any investigation, we will follow the evidence as far as it takes us, referring to the two charges that they're being brought right now. These charges carry a maximum combined sentence of 30 years to life in state prison. And in a statement coming out of Michael Moore, our favorite police chief, uh, quote, when one of our own breaks the trust of the people we are sworn to protect and serve, it tarnishes the badge we all wear proudly on our chest. This arrest also reflects our commitment to pursue every lead, no matter where the investigation takes us, end quote. Um, and this unfortunately ties in with something that's become a bit of a trope online, but mm. also something that it's just a statistical, like, uh, kind of fact at this point that 40%. police officers engage in, yeah, domestic violence at far higher rates oh, than yeah. the general population. Um, like, this kind of just gendered like the sexual violence ones. seems... Oh, yeah. Well, and it, it's also like this kind of gendered sexual violence we also see happening in the military in these Absolutely. hierarchical institutions yeah. that have a lot of bravado and machismo. We see a lot of violence against women and violence Carl against Marlene. women like what? on the force. Yeah. Not even Mondoyan. There was the uh, the L.A. P police uh, commander who, uh, you know, brought drop up to the yep. surface because he retired an extra year early and lost like a million dollars in his extra retirement. Uh, and there was a, a whole case of revenge porn and uh, allegations of sexual assault and yep. allegations of dating within the force and infidelity within the force. And like these sort of things keep happening. And even going to uh, those officers who are being investigated for the cadet program, where oh apparently God, like a 30 year old officer was having sex with a 16 year old cadet yep. and allowed them car. access to like, 
Well, and, and allowed them access to the keys to like an SUV, which a couple of cadets stole along with some Kevlar vests. Mm -hmm. I don't think they stole guns, but they stole radios. Uh, hopefully they don't get those radios wet or they'll break. <laughs> uh, but we, we kind of see this happening over and over again. And it seems like it's not, you know, LAPD seems very reactive in these senses and not proactive. And I think that's especially like underlined here when... His DNA was only run when he was suspected of another crime. Like yeah. you being a police officer with a gun and a badge is not getting your DNA checked against crime databases. And that seems like a, a, a strange yeah. one to me. It seems like if you're trusted by the state to do that, you should regularly have your DNA tested against cold crime databases because you're trusted with a lot of responsibility. Like you should be able to withstand that. It's one of those, you know, police violate your fourth amendment rights by saying, well, what do you have to hide? It's like, we're not even empowered by the state. Like yeah. you're going to have that extra responsibility. You should have to go that undergo that extra level of screening. And we know with SB 1421 and we know with the Brady lists that this sort of stuff uh, is hidden by police departments Absolutely. and they've gone out of their way to keep misconduct of officers hidden from the public. So this is one where like, yeah, even burning documents. Yeah. Well, and it, it you know, this one, fortunately the, the guy was, was caught um, and will be taken off the streets and not be an LAPD officer anymore. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that means that he committed a sexual assault two years ago and then was on the force as a police officer. Oh, no, four, four years ago, August of 2015. Oh, geez, you're right. Yeah. My math is bad. He's been, he's been, this is like a sexual predator who has been a police officer on duty for the last four years. And that they, yeah, it's, in, this is absolutely insane. So, um, but g given the fact that this investigation is is coming to the light of the public uh, around the exact same time that the FBI has formally begun their investigation of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department over their internal gang culture, you know, the banditos and the reapers and all of those other guys with those tattoos on their thighs, uh, it would seem that Michael Moore's statement that he made relating to, you know, we are so committed to pursuing every lead no matter where this investigation is taking us, we should probably take that statement with a giant grain of salt because I think that Michael Moore is just happy that like he's not in quite quite as hot of a seat as Villanueva is right now. Yep. So that's uh, yeah, and Villanueva. We we'll get to that one in a minute, yeah. but that one is he's his seat is getting like to red hot levels of hot. Mm -hmm. um, I. I don't know if he's going to actually be able to finish out his term um, <laughs> or, or at not. least do so comfortably. It sounds like there's some big stick uh, oversight coming down. So let's let's uh, move on to the Board of Supervisors because they're voting for more oversight specifically in regards to uh, these uh, deputy gangs that we've talked about before. Uh, and this one, like, remember when Sheriff Lee Baca went down, uh, uh, under Sheriff Paul Tanaka, also went down with him. And one of the things about Paul Tanaka was he was a member of a white supremacist deputy gang Always with a gang fun. tattoo and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was it. That one was kind of uh, a mind blower for a lot of people because he was the second highest ranking official in the sheriff's department. Uh, and you don't vote for under sheriffs like they rise up to oh, that yeah. level through purely administrative and bureaucratic ways. So this is a guy process, who attained power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he, he attained power over thousands and thousands of deputies uh, while being part of a gang, uh, which I forget which one he was a part of, maybe the Reapers. Um, it was something with a very, like, friendly name. They all, but they, let's they talk about all, what... Yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry. You never have a gang with like a, a not, you know, like a not scary name. But let's go ahead and talk about the, the Board of Supervisors voted to do this week. Yeah, exactly. So Tuesday last week, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously, as they often do, to explore how to grant the power of subpoena to the chief watchdog for the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, which is the Office of the Inspector General for the county. So for folks who have not, who have, you know, the word subpoena is thrown around a lot in the news. And, you know, some people don't necessarily know exactly what it means. But here's a quick rundown. A subpoena mm-hmm. is a an order to appear before a court or an other legal body or to present information to it to give testimony or otherwise disclose information. So in this case, what we're talking about is the uh, Office of Inspector General is going to be able to grant uh, they're going to be able to legally mandate that sheriff's deputies and that people who work for the sheriff uh, are forced to either come and give testimony or turn over documents uh, at their request in order to you know figure out what the hell is going on with this gang situation within the sheriff's department. And so uh, I actually remember reading in one of the articles in the LA Times recently that they've referred to this as uh, quote unquote secret societies within the sheriff's department, which is... Like it's a fraternity. Yeah, right? It's a fraternity of people who just happen to all go and get tattoos of matching, you know, skull and bones and, you know, uh, uh, scythes and whatnot and, and, and cloaked skeletal figures. In fairness, what I hear about the real skull and bones at Yale is you actually have to get branded. So come on, LAPD deputies, step, step it up. Step it up, guys. Uh, yeah, so basically what we're talking about here is that they, uh, you, if you, they choose, if any of the deputies or anyone in, who works for the sheriff refuses to comply with this subpoena, uh, they would be basically found in contempt of court and then they could be put in jail uh, for noncompliance. And uh, they need to be putting, giving all this information, uh, which is also coincidentally, I'm sure, uh, being investigated by the FBI at the exact same time. Uh, and so just a quick reminder of what these gangs are that we're talking about. Uh, there are the banditos who are based in the East Los Angeles branch of the department, and uh, they are alleged to have massive uh, you know, uh, citizen intimidation rackets going on. Uh, they're accused of a lot of harassment of the victims of families of police violence within the area. Um, specifically, some of the folks that I've actually been meeting on these, like the sh- on the sheriff's uh, civilian oversight commission uh, meetings, like these people are the victims of the sheriff's department, specifically the banditos. Uh, and you know, another fun one to remember is the, the Reapers, which uh, Carl Mandoyan was one of the guys in the Reapers, which uh, that was, uh, it, it was an article about Carl Mandoyan that revealed that he was in the Reapers and that that membership in that quote unquote secret society had been revealed to Villanueva and he was just like, yeah, we're gonna go ahead and run down with that one anyway. So it's, it's a very interesting time for the sheriff and his department. And I am and extremely interested in seeing how this all unravels. And it's, it's one where, again, the, the county board hasn't voted to give the inspector general any new powers. Correct. Like, this is a vote to come up with a plan to have another vote. So yeah. this is, you know, it's going to take another three or six months. I also think it's interesting that the county board voted unanimously for this but couldn't vote unanimously for the first round of rent freezes, um, <sighs> which, you know, that's, that's one that's still, like, kind of boggled my mind. I think the second round of rent freezes uh, went four to zero, um, which was a good one. But it's it's... 
you can kind of see where their priorities are. Uh, when it comes to like the banditos and the reapers and the stalkers and the other ones out there, one of the other fun things we've had in LA that's happened several times is they've gotten into like drunken brawls with each other. Oh, I where forgot about those. LA County Sheriff's Departments, yeah, have to be like other LA County Sheriff's deputies have to be called out to break up their drunken brawls. One time it was at like a VFW lodge where they had rented it oh out for God. some sort of a party mm -hmm. and it was deputies who were specifically assigned to the jails and like two various gangs got into a fight with each other even though they're all literally sheriff's deputies so these gangs are not just like you know palling around with each other they have like inter-gang rivalries between each other within the department and it points to kind of a real lack of discipline that's been there even under like mcdonald who promised that he would be cutting down on these and he would be like um or sorry, you know, clamping down on these gangs and this kind of activity, there's no real indication that that's happened. Like, there's no indication that these gangs have stopped existing or gotten smaller in size or stopped forming. Um, and there's been some ideas that maybe they're just going more underground. But, like, when you see the tattoos that some of these gangs have, they're, they're like full calf pieces. Oh, yeah. And they're, like, it, pretty decent art. I'm not going to lie. As a tattoo fan myself, like, they have some good tattoo artists. But it's pretty audacious that they're able to go, like that blatantly with that kind of art and that sort of a name and like have it be known to other deputies and have nobody really ratting them out. Um, and also when you consider that a lot of like about 50% of LA's deputies work in the corrections system, these guys are usually intimidating and beating up people who are already incarcerated. Like a lot of the mm -hmm. folks that they're victimizing are already being victimized by the state. And that just makes it a whole different level of horrible, like a, a much deeper abuse of power. Yep. So, uh, anyway, speaking of uh, abuses of power, uh, <laughs> Carl Mondayan just will not go away. I'm, I'm uh, really loving the these transitions today. I just wanted to throw that one out it's, there. <laughs> it's... All on the spot. I, I've never taken an improv class. <laughs> UCB, pay me to come teach there. I can I can do this all day. Uh, but Mondrian is still around. He's still on the force, uh, serving in a secret location of some sort, still <laughs> no. not being paid. Uh, but if, if Alex gets his way, he's going to get paid. But so let's talk about the latest stuff to come out of the uh, lawsuit surrounding this and what we've learned about how the rest of the department uh, sort of felt about this, because a lot of other officers were not excited to bring Carl back. Yeah, so specifically, we're going to be jumping to, like, right at the beginning of Villanueva's tenure as the sheriff. Uh, and this is a, a, a piece that was uh, that came out on July 18th in the LA Times. Uh, fantastic reporting, as always, by Maya Lau, who is just on fire covering Villanueva and is apparently earning some serious ire from the sheriff uh, on Twitter and, like, him specifically calling her out by name in a lot of circumstances. Like, it's genuinely creepy. Well, there was that thing where he got really mad at her because he went on a radio show. Oh, yeah. And the, th the, oh, the, the, host fight, yeah. The, the host asked him, like, who would win in a fight between LAPD and L.A. County sheriffs? And Villanueva said, oh, you know, we've got more women on the force, so it would probably be LAPD. And Maya Lau was like, wow, that seems ridiculously sexist. And also, why the hell would you answer that question that way? Yeah. And then he attempted to get her fired through Twitter and, like, got really angry about it. Sir? I'd like to speak with her manager. Well, and the thing was like, he, he made it seem as though she was like making this up or taking it out of context. But and it's like, dude, you went on the <laughs> fucking radio and said that, like, how do you think radio works? Uh, yeah, no, he is a, a very special character. 
Um, but yeah, so this was a piece that came out on July 18th, getting back to my allows reporting. Uh, the, yes. the officer in question who we're talking about, uh, is her name is Alicia Alt and she served in the sheriff's department for 34 years. And at the time she was the chief of the department's professional standards and training division before she resigned when just as Sheriff Villanueva was coming into office. So according to the LA times quote, she left the agency after her 34 years rather than carry out what she said was a, quote, highly unethical and, quote, unheard of directive from Sheriff Alex Villanueva to reinstate a fired deputy and alter his disciplinary record. The really fun one for me is the whole altering of his disciplinary record um, because it seemed like they were just like saying, oh, yeah, let's just like add a couple of extra words in here and completely change the meaning of everything that had happened. So this effort all yep. came in the very final days of Sheriff McDonald's tenure uh, right before Villanueva took office uh, so as to make it look like the reinstatement of Mendoyan was actually being done by the lame duck sheriff prior to Villanueva starting in the office. So we don't really have enough time. Which is an amazingly it's an amazingly illegal and unethical oh, thing to do to sure. try and like, you know, issue orders before you've actually been sworn in. Yeah. Like that is an amazing breach of the concept of rule of law. Well, Welcome to 2018, 2019 America. <laughs> Things got real weird. So we don't really have enough time to go over this absolutely fascinating story in too much detail today, but we'd highly recommend that everyone go check out this article, as well as everything else that Maya Lau has been reporting on Sheriff Villanueva and his deputies, because it is absolutely incredible. She is doing such amazing work. Uh, hats off to Maya Lau, and I really hope that she keeps doing this because this is exactly the kind of journalistic integrity and like deep probing pieces that we need so desperately in this time to call out those who are in power for their absolutely ridiculous corrupt levels of incompetence and just gross misdeeds. So thank you, Maya, and we'll be talking about a lot more of your pieces. Yeah, and I'm sure this sure. one's going to keep getting deeper. The uh, County Board of Supervisors has signaled oh, yeah. very, very obviously that they are not happy with this and that they want this situation fixed. Uh, Villanueva, for his part, has signaled that he is on Mondoyan's side, that he is willing to go to the mat for this one guy. Uh, and it makes... I mean, it, it was makes his first no priority. effing sense. But hey, we get to vote no. him out of office, too. No. So we're just going to keep voting our sheriff out Hell of office yeah. until they just give up the concept of having a sheriff altogether, because it is a stupid colonialist <laughs> concept. <laughs> Wait, is we'll, that how we'll this works? We'll make it work that way. Uh, but it, it's a, it's we, a we'll stupid it colonialist <laughs> concept that really needs to go away. And like I've mentioned before, you know, in L.A. County, we have, Agreed. you know, about two and a half million people who live in unincorporated L.A., and the closest thing they have have to a government is the LA County Sheriff's deputies and that really needs to get fixed like we can't just oh God, that's cut such a back on the Sheriff's Department that's, we yeah. also have to expand the reach and the effectiveness of our county government it needs to be more than five people it really really needs to be five, more than five people and I know in the next yeah. uh, probably next week yeah. we'll try and hit it but we're going to talk about the upcoming right to shelter because when we talk about the intersection of 
the deputies and the county board of supervisors oh, and the carceral state. That one really mm-hmm. is scary and needs to be dug into. Uh, but we're not going to talk about it this time. But just keep in mind, like as much as the county board of supervisors wants to talk about regulating the sheriff, they don't want to regulate the sheriff away. They just want a more effective stick in to, to criminalize people with. And we need to really keep an eye on that because they're like the L.A. County Sheriff's deputies are fairly unchecked. There's nobody looking over their shoulder when they're operating out in these unincorporated areas. There's maybe an attorney general. There's the, the Civilian Oversight Commission, which we talked about, which doesn't have subpoena power. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that nope. they're willing to give the inspector general subpoena power in this one kind of slim case. But we have an entire civilian oversight board that can't really do its job because it was always designed to be underpowered. An and we're working on fixing that, but it's going to take a little mm-hmm. while. But until we have real civilian oversight, these abuses are just kind of going to, well, you know, it's like whack-a-mole where we fix sort of one of them and a different one pops up. Uh, so, you know, we'll keep you on top of that one. Absolutely. But really quick, speaking of things like abuses of power, uh, we forgot, we mentioned that we were going to talk about the uh, the lawsuit between K-Town for All and a number of unhoused folks living in uh, living in the city and dealing with 5611. Oh, yeah. uh, really quick to just touch on that because we totally forgot to talk about it. And at we the top are about to talk about City Hall, uh, so this the, will we are, yes. So this will work. Um, but yeah, so uh, the 5611 lawsuit that was brought uh, by a number of unhoused residents with K-Town for All as one of the plaintiffs, uh, basically what it comes down to, and we, we can't go into too much detail about this because as a member of K-Town for All, uh, technically I am part of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, and it gets not good for me to say too much in detail, but what it really comes down to is that we believe that the uh, enforcement of 5611, which is the um, the limitation of bulky goods uh, that are being held by unhoused folks on the streets of Los Angeles is unconstitutional. And the way unconstitutional and the way that it is enforced is uh, an egregious breach of folks' constitutional rights, um, and that the city needs to stop doing this. And uh, K-Town for All, because we are spending our resources, our time and energy, replacing goods that have been confiscated and taken by the city, uh, yeah, we are a plaintiff in this. It's not, yeah, it's, it's, it goes for a long, it's a long, complicated lawsuit. You guys should really look into it because it's very, very fun. Uh, like, this is very well written and it's good. And 5611 uh, was sort of settled in the Mitchell case. There are some NIMBYs that are attempting to get that settlement thrown well, out. Uh, so that one's still in process. So it was only settled technically yes. for Skid Row, but yes, there are NIMBYs who are further pushing to try to limit that settlement and undo that settlement, saying that they, you know, that their rights were abridged because of the way that the city decided to actually settle yeah. the Mitchell case. Uh, it is a mess out there. This is a law that really just, you know. I don't know how much more time and energy the city is going to want to spend trying to defend 5611, but you know something's got to be done. So we'll we'll probably end up tying that in along with that right to shelter discussion. Uh, in uh, yeah. next week, we'll talk about that. Let's let's make that a, a a thing that we promise to do, and go over that because it it needs to happen. I, I was going to say though, Chris, you sound like one of those crazy liberals that Garcetti was complaining about in that dump from Colhaus, where you believe that, that words <laughs> Wait, have what? meaning. <laughs> and yeah, oh, if you no. if y'all like we've we've repped Kohlhaas several times, but check out michaelkohlhaas.org and there is a huge dump of of yes. uh, emails from LA City Sanitation from various city council offices cuz a lot of these sweeps get called in through 311 
or get called into council offices and they get arranged through LA Sanitation. And there's just gigabytes and gigabytes of emails that go through like how these happen in a very clinical and really disturbing way. But there's some, some really good quotes in there, especially from uh, philosopher king, mayor boy, Eric Garcetti, um, that really just makes it clear mm. that he doesn't think groups like K-Town for All or Services Not Sweeps or Street Watch or LA Can should be sticking their noses in this and are anything more than troublemakers who are trying to make his life harder. Mm. And it's a really disturbing kind of, of perspective oh, yeah. to see. That, that's absolutely yeah, and it's, what it's we're all one about. where like, Sarcasm. you know, when we get into the, the K-Town for All lawsuit a little bit more next week, one of the lead plaintiffs in this, she's a plaintiff because she's a house cleaner and multiple times LAPD has come and thrown out all of her house cleaning supplies. Like, it's a woman who works a job and LAPD is spending money to stop her from being able to keep a job and it just continually acting at cross purposes and and as Garcetti is trying to build this like LA of the 21st century and trying to like you know kind of um, lock in his legacy as like the modern mayor and the mayor who really fixes LA it's really disturbing to see where his loyalties lie and his loyalties don't lie with actually fixing the city it lies with him having the PR to be able to sell that he's he's made progress even though we see the numbers in the point in time count but before we go too deeply into that now we have to do kind progress of a, under the mayor yeah <laughs> But now, now uh, before we go too much into that, we're going to have to do something that's a little bit weird uh, because we've spent most of this time ragging on the cops, but now we're going to sort of be celebrating like a different kind of cop uh, going after City Hall, uh, as you probably <laughs> saw because it blew up all over the city. Uh, but the FBI, for the second time in like six months, uh, just raided City Hall. And we've got to be on pace for a record here. Like, I would like to look it up, but we've got to be on pace for a record here for how many times uh, a City Hall has been raided by the FBI in the same year. Uh, maybe we can go for three. Maybe we can go for four. You know, I, I bet as these developer like shenanigans in the Weezar case uh, get investigated more, maybe we'll see another uh, uh, FBI raid. But let's talk about this latest series of raids, which targeted LA. DWP and LA City Attorney's uh, LA City Attorney's Office uh, staff, uh, basically around the the whole rate play, payer um, kerfluffle, I'll call it, from a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, let's talk the details yeah, here. That's that's a pretty accurate description. Yeah, so just a, a quick little fact check for you there. Uh, the last raid was on November 7th, 2018. So oh, it's has been, it been that long? Uh, okay. About eight and a half months. Yeah, it's been about eight and a half months. But but they still have until uh, November 7th uh, next year to make it, you know, let's see if they can get three of them in in, in a 12-month period. Um, that was, of course... Uh, Robert Mueller, I believe in you. <laughs> so, of course, as you mentioned, that was of uh, Jose Huizar and his offices and his home as well, relating to election finance situations and fundraising and cardboard boxes full of material and a sniffer dog that searches for uh, digital devices. So this latest FBI raided. Mm -hmm. So apparently this time they didn't no, bring they any didn't, dogs. They were no footage. Otherwise, like apparently this time they didn't yeah. bring any dogs. So that's it's well, not no, as fun. it's not. And we definitely would have seen it because that's absolutely something that Twitter goes nuts over. Um, so 
the latest FBI raid on municipal offices in the city of Los Angeles stems from the Department of Water and Powers changing their billing system back in 2013. PricewaterhouseCoopers oversaw the transition to that new system, and there were some massive problems with the new bills from the outset. Some Angelinos were being overbilled by thousands of dollars, others received their bills after significant delays, or they received inaccurate late notices, and some of us actually received no bills at all, but yet we're still expected to pay. It was absolute chaos and resulted in a class action lawsuit. Then in 2017... I, I do want to add on here before we move on real quick. PricewaterhouseCoopers is also the same people who messed up the uh, 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 Oscars announcement for movie. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and that got them removed from being the official counters of the Oscars oh, ballots, uh, which they now brought wow. in-house. But yeah, every year, like remember, they'd show like behind the scenes and be like, here's the official person from PricewaterhouseCoopers, and they make sure we counted the ballots <laughs> correctly. Uh, and then they screwed up that Moonlight one, and they wow. lost the right to do that. So PricewaterhouseCoopers not having the best decade. And let's also not forget that they were also implicated in some of the shenanigans around 2008's financial crisis because they are a massive, massive accounting firm that handles a lot of Wall Street business. So they were helping to bury a lot of the derivatives losses that uh, ultimately took down uh, uh, brokerage houses like Lehman and uh, other large ones on, mm -hmm. on Wall Street. So like the accounting industry uh, has proven just about as corrupt as the actual people they're supposed to be overseeing. Uh, so what's fun here is that actually PricewaterhouseCoopers comes back as not quite the villain in this story, but we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so back in 2017, the city actually settled that lawsuit and agreed to pay $67 million in refunds for DWP customers, fix their billing system, as well as pay for damages resulting from some of the billing issues like plumber, plumber bills and whatnot. Uh, the city also retained, and here's where things get fun, two private lawyers named Paul Paradis and Paul Kiesel. Uh, Kiesel, Kiesel, I'm not quite sure on how to pronounce that one, but it, we'll get into it later. Uh, so yeah. those two were working as special counsel on the case. Uh, again, special counsel, another word that everyone I, I want to break in here and point out I want to point out that uh, uh, Paradis and Kiesel uh, ha came for the low, low price million of $30 million. No bid, too. $30 million. And they were also like set to take 20% of the lawsuit settlement between the city and PricewaterhouseCoopers. So uh, th this like insane amounts of money. But anyway, uh, this year, PricewaterhouseCoopers uncovered that Paradis was apparently potentially double dealing in this case, having previously represented the lead plaintiff in the 2014 class action suit. So the LA Times got a hold of an excerpt of the yep. federal search warrant that was executed by the FBI last week, and it appears to be the case that the FBI agents were looking for DWP contracts with companies that are affiliated with Paradis. The FBI also... And Price... Mm -hmm. PricewaterhouseCooper, for what they're saying, is that their argument is that Paradis didn't go out and do this like on his own. Like he didn't go rogue and go off reservation and just like take this client on. That he was actually coordinating with LADWP to represent the top client in that case so that they could cherry pick the strongest case to go after PricewaterhouseCoopers. Oh. And also, so Paradis would be willing to negotiate a lower settlement for the top plaintiff oh on the case. So there actually might be another case coming 
coming about coming against LADWP because there might potentially be millions more that's owed in damages wow. here. Yeah. So the FBI, uh, that yeah, let's this so, getting back on topic. Um, there's just so much going on with this. So the FBI also searched the offices of uh, Department of Water and Power Executive David Wright, who was then immediately fired by Mayor Garcetti. Uh, various DWP commissioners were also had their offices raided, and so did Kiesel's law offices in Beverly Hills. Uh, the uh, Kiesel is actually claiming that all of his work was done at the quote-unquote express direction of City Attorney Mike Feuer's office. So this investigation is also potentially going to have some longer, much longer political impact uh, because it would be putting a significant damper on Feuer's expected run for the mayor's office in 2022. So keep your eyes open and watch what's going on with this one, folks, because it's going to get real interesting. Yeah, and I, I mean, this takes me back a little bit in time where a couple of my friends got slapped with like several thousand dollars in bills for a month's worth of like energy use in the city of LA and like one bedroom apartments and then had a hell of a time arguing with LADWP whether or not they had to pay it. And even when it became clear that like the billing system was broken, things were not oh, working absolutely. as they were supposed to be working, LADWP was still telling customers, no, no, you have to pay us these this $2,500 for a month's worth of energy usage and then we'll get you back. Trust yeah. us. And surprisingly, a lot of people uh, did not trust them <laughs> to do that and like ended up having like collections claims made against them even when those bills were thrown out it took a good 18 months for LADWP to get this all back on track and like figure out how this is working so you know even though PricewaterhouseCooper looks like they got screwed a little bit here by the city attorney's office and everything they're still kind of one of oh, the bad guys sure. like there's no yeah, good no. guy in this entire like <laughs> yeah. thing and it's it's one where we keep running into this with LA where we're supposed to be a tech city right like we're we're we've got multiple Google headquarters here we've got Snapchat we've got like a whole Silicon Beach yeah. and at the same time like we just can't seem to do computer stuff really well and <laughs> Not it's the municipal frustrating level anyway. yep. and maddening it's yeah, it's really kind of well, here's the fun thing. So I was going on to the uh, LA County Board of Supervisors website and I kept getting security warnings when I clicked <laughs> through the pages because they hadn't updated their security certificates. And it wasn't like anything big, but like my Firefox was like I'm not going to let you surf <laughs> to like the County Board of Supervisors site. video archives. <laughs> Yes. And I was talking to Ace, like I put this up on the, the ground game slack and Ace was like, oh yeah, I keep getting those from my county owned computer in my county office. It, LA, remember LA County has a budget of $12 billion, $12 billion. And they can't pay a security certificate that costs a couple hundred dollars a year. Like, ah, uh. this is such, yeah. All right. Yeah, so we'll we'll definitely keep you updated on that one. Uh, maybe it'll be like Equifax, and we can all like get 125 bucks. Well, I don't get 125 bucks from Equifax because apparently my dad is safe, Ooh. and I've never been more angry about that. <laughs> yeah. So you know, if you get your 125 dollars and don't share it with me, then you are not Aww. doing Praxis. Well, we'll keep you in mind. <laughs> I'm just in, enjoy your $125. Like use it for use it for something fun. Like buy some stickers, buy some patches, um, buy somebody a tent. Because the Russians now have all your information. Yeah, no, I also <laughs> didn't use FaceApp, so like, like they won't know what I look like when I'm 60. Oh, hey, yeah. there you go. Uh, but let's talk about yeah. some good stuff because there were some pretty big climate yeah. winds in the state of California this week. Uh, not just in Glendale, but also we're going to travel all the way up north 
ish uh, and talk about San Francisco's energy policy. But let's uh, let's talk about uh, the Grayson plant, which is in Glendale. And I believe you were at the city council meeting uh, where they they finally did the I vote was, on this. I was, and one. you are very much aware that I was there because you saw the video of it. Uh, so yeah, I got to speak at that hearing alongside Dan Brotman, who is actually now running for the Glendale City Council. Uh, he's been the head of the Glendale Environmental Coalition for a, a while now. I think he actually started it. Um, and so he's now uh, running for city council in Glendale. And all of those seats that they have up there are at-large seats. So they can be contested by anyone who lives in the district. And uh, they just basically all represent the district as a whole, hence why they're called at-large. Um, so Glendale, basically, there's the, the Grayson Power Plant uh, in Glendale uh, is one of their uh, one of the the few remaining gas turbines uh, turbines uh, that are going to be continuing to operate for the foreseeable future in California. And there was originally a plan that was put forward by the Glendale Power uh, uh, Company in order to expand the capacity at Grayson significantly, uh, and doing almost all of it with a uh, an, an expansion of their internal combustion engine uh, power generation systems. And so. The Glendale Environmental Coalition initially came in and opposed that and said, hey, this is like, like this is not cool. Uh, there's got to be something better than this. This seems like a ton of extra power that we don't necessarily need. Can you guys like sharpen up those pencils and do the math again? And they went back and they did the math again. And it turns out that the environmentalists were completely correct. The amount of power that was necessary in terms of increased production was vastly overstated in the initial plans. So they came back and they have that now this new proposal that was going to be creating a whole bunch of solar, a bunch of battery storage systems, and then a, a minor quote-unquote update in terms of the expanded capacity of the internal combustion engine systems at the Grayson facility. Primarily, they were planning on doing it for a relatively small number of hours uh, per week during peak usage in the summer in order to cover the extra power consumption of everybody's air conditioners. And they were making plans that they were going to be using uh, potentially renewable uh, renewable fuels instead of just like natural gas, but at the same time, like even if you're burning renewable fuels, you're still putting more carbon into the atmosphere that you could otherwise be sequestering. When they say renewable fuels, they mean things like trash and like yeah. biomass, which aren't actually no. renewable. They just mean we yes. have a steady supply of trash. <laughs> exactly. That we can burn. Uh, and again, it, and when you're burning it, you are producing more carbon that is jumping up into the atmosphere. And the you know also, uh, I believe the the corn the corn ethanol counts as a renewable biofuel, doesn't it? So that that's... Yeah, I, I think that falls under like yeah, biomass. So anyway, the point with all of this is that Glendale City Council voted, uh, I believe it was unanimously, to postpone the expansion of the gas turbine system at Grayson uh, for, the, for the time being. So they're not going to be taking this up again for another couple of years, I believe. Uh, and this is a huge win for the Glendale Environmental Coalition and their allies, including a whole bunch of folks from Sunrise Movement, as well as DSALA, who all showed up to give testimony there. Uh, and it was fantastic. It was a great show of solidarity, and uh, we came around, came away with a very strong win. So, cheers to you guys up in Glendale. Now, something, something I heard that I'm not sure. Maybe uh -huh. you can confirm this, but I heard that um, a union worker got into a bit of an argument with a Sunrise uh, person and ended up punching them in the face. Oh wow! Uh, I actually had not heard of that. Um, there was definitely there were yeah. definitely some heated some heated exchanges going on and some folks uh, very much wanting to speak out and, and, and be heard 
uh, with, you know, more time at the podium than others. Uh, and it was a very interesting uh, experience. Honestly, I got to say, like Glendale City Hall, the fact that they hold their public meetings uh, at like starting at 6 p.m., uh, is really kind of refreshing because it means that the general public is actually able to attend. But at the same time, I do also kind of understand that, like with the number of meetings that LA City Hall does, like it would be very tough to see uh, how long those meetings would go every single night. But uh, that being said, it was a yeah. very contentious hearing. There were definitely um, some frayed nerves going on on both sides of things. And I do, I can see where like some of the, the, the IBEW, um, 18, yeah, local 18 workers uh, who showed up in force to, you know, argue for the uh, moving forward with this new plan because they want to make sure that the uh, gas turbines continue to operate and that they expand and there are more jobs. Like there was a lot of union support to move this motion forward. And there was a lot of Sunrise and Glendale Environmental Coalition to stop this motion and say, hey, guys, we need to take a break on this. Like, do more, do more of that pencil sharpening, do more of that math. Let's figure out how to do this without expanding our reliance on uh, natural gas. And so there was, there was bound to be some kind of conflict, but I actually, I cannot, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that there was any punching that took place as I was not witness to anything. So, uh, that's, Shocking. Yeah, I'll, I'll just have to treat that one as a, a yeah. secondhand report. It's it's getting oh, heated sure. out there uh, because there are a lot of folks who are afraid of, of losing their jobs. And I understand that because, you know, one thing. Yeah, but it's such a false dichotomy between environmentalism and, and labor. Like it's, it doesn't there is no there should not be any conflict there because we're all trying to do the same thing. We all want good, clean jobs so that people can, can take care of their families and so that we don't pollute the earth to the point where it's no longer well, inhabitable. A lot of it's like this is a, a lot of it's coming from the way that the corporations themselves are like moving forward in this. And when we see like Maersk like trying to oh, greenwash sure. away jobs, you know, this isn't a dichotomy that really exists, but the corporations that stand they to benefit the to most are they benefit more if we're yes. at each other's throats rather than like building and working towards just transition. Uh, but on another like up note, uh, which sort of points to a path forward for uh, not just San Francisco, but for like all of L.A. governments. And this includes Culver City, which is also looking to uh, remove its like interest in the Inglewood oil fields, uh, one of the largest urban oil fields in the nation. Uh, San Francisco has decided that they're giving up their ownership stake in some large oil fields up in uh, Kern County, right? Yes, they are. So uh, I was not aware that San Francisco owned a bunch of land in Kern County. Uh, and I was also not aware of the fact that there are 82 oil wells that are operating on that land. Um, according to the San Francisco Examiner, quote, under a little known agreement, the city has for years received oil royalties by leasing hundreds of acres. It was bequeathed in the Bakersfield Kern River oil field to Chevron. Lately, that's been to the tune of $24,000 a month, end quote. So back in 2016, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors passed the, quote, keep it in the ground legislation that had been introduced by then-supervisor John Avalos. At the time, Avalos said that, quote, the city getting revenue from fossil fuel extraction when we're trying to reduce our dependency on fossil fuel doesn't make a lot of sense. We have to keep fossil fuel in the ground. We cannot burn it. If we were to burn it all, we will destroy the planet, end quote. Thank you, John Avalos. You are totally correct. We need to stop burning the fossil fuels. So San Francisco is now looking to sell off this land following recent approval from the Library Commission, which governs the use of the land. Um, personally, I would rather that they kept holding on to the land and they just stopped letting Chevron pump the oil. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's also something we've seen a little bit in L.A. where I believe it is... 
Um, uh, the Alenco site in, yes, it is definitely the Alenco site in Los Angeles where, you know, half of the land is owned by the city yeah, of Los yeah. Angeles and the other half of land is owned by the archdiocese. Oh, and man, so the city one. of LA, when Alenco said, hey, we're going to bring six of these wells back online, the city of LA said, no, we're not extending you the lease to do that, hoping that Alenco would do the math and say, well, only bringing on bringing three of these well sites back online isn't actually worth it, so we're not going to bring any of them back online. Uh, there's still a lot of community pressure trying to get the archdiocese in a largely like Spanish-speaking and Latin neighborhood that is heavily Catholic to not allow this kind of drilling to be happening at a site that is poisoning parishioners of the church, mm -hmm. but that's still a fight that's going on. But we're seeing this kind of spread up and down the coast where cities and counties that have been reliant on oil revenue uh, for extra money just beyond what they get out from you know tax outlays year over year are deciding it's not worth it. And we kind of have to keep that pressure up because that $24,000 a month is, a, you know, that's a, a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. That's not chump change, but it pales in comparison to the amount of damage that is done by burning that carbon and by shipping that oil across the world. And the more we can hammer that point home, the more we can convince people in power that like, these short-term gains are not worth the long-term damage you're doing, not just to your community, not just to your constituents, but to the planet, the more we're going to see these wins get bigger and bolder, and the more we're gonna be able to cut back against companies like Chevron and Philips that still have like incredibly dangerous oil refineries sitting in our effing neighborhoods using hydrogen fluoride to refine gas, even though there are safer processes to do that, and if you saw Philadelphia, that oh shit goes God. boom yeah. sometimes, and it's bad. Yeah, it's super bad. It's super Super toxic. Slash it will melt people's lungs, and it is. Yeah, we've we need to get we just stop using fossil fuels. Just stop. Like we just need to stop. Uh. Well, so uh, to transition to our, our last segment here, and something that is also very bad for the, the human well-being, uh, we're going to talk about a Quillette article. Oh no. <laughs> So, uh, this one is uh, all about uh, Britain's biggest, wettest boy, Boris Johnson, um, who has been likened to a British Donald Trump. Uh, some people saying that in a positive way, uh, and those people scare me. Um, but Quillette, like I mentioned them in my big, like, you know, kind of overview of Andy No and his kind of far outrage journalism. And, and Quillette is an outlet that uh, was started by uh, an Australian woman, uh, Claire Lehman. It kind of builds itself as like the journalistic outlet of the intellectual dark web. So if you want to see people who think that Jordan Peterson and phrenology are like the latest and greatest in science, Quillette is definitely where you go. Uh, this latest article, it was published by a man named Toby Young, who I'm not too familiar with. And after reading this, I'm not interested to learn more about him. Uh, but it is entitled, quote, cometh the man, I'm sorry. It's entitled, quote, cometh the hour, cometh the man, a profile of Boris Johnson. Holy so shit. So <laughs> we're starting out like on a good fight. Firing uh, in all cylinders. Know, like, oh yeah, let's go. Oh my God. It, 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 it's, it gets dark. Uh, but just to let you all know, um, we're going to have the link, obviously, in the, the show description, but I'm not going to read the entire article because <laughs> this is legitimately 5,000 words. It is so freaking long. So I'm really going to hit like sort of the beginning, hit some of the meat in the middle, and then hit to the be end because that's really where the gems are. I mean, to are. be fair, didn't Nathan uh, J. Robinson do... if you do, do want to melt your... I was just going to say, to be fair, didn't Nathan J. Robinson do 10,000 words on uh, Mayor Pete? 
I mean, maybe I, I, <laughs> I try and stay away from all Mayor Pete coverage. Uh, I'm just like, I'm just waiting for him to drop out, he you does know, need to drop make out, the yeah. announcement from whatever private jet he's on at the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, so on, on Boris Johnson, this is an insanely long article and I would not suggest reading all of it unless you really, truly dislike yourself. Cause it's painful. Uh, I did read it all because I, I, I'm a bit of a masochist, but we're going to go ahead and uh, start here. So the first two paragraphs really set the stage and, uh, quote, I first set eyes on Boris Johnson in the autumn of 1983 when we went up to Oxford at the same time. I knew who he was since my uncle Christopher was an ex-boyfriend of his mother's and he had told me to keep an eye out for him, but I still wasn't prepared for the sight and sound of him at the dispatch box of the Oxford Union. This is the world-famous debating society where ambitious undergraduates honed their public speaking skills before embarking on careers in politics or journalism, and Boris was proposing the motion. With his huge mop of blonde hair, his tie askew, and his shirt escaping from his trousers, he looked like an overgrown schoolboy. Uh, yet with his imposing physical build, his thick neck, and his broad Germanic forehead, what? there was also something of Nietzsche's Ubermensch about what? him. You could imagine him in Lederhosen wandering through the no. Black Forest with an axe over his shoulder, no. looking for ogres to kill. This is full the phrenology. Same combination, a <laughs> the same combination, a state of advanced dishevelment and a sense of coiled strength of an almost tangible will to power was even more pronounced in his way of speaking. End quote. So, first off, ogres don't actually exist and they haven't ever existed no, in the black forest no, of Germany. But, so I'm a little confused but real there. Quick. But also, if anyone... Uh, is this like, yeah, Boris Johnson, like, he's a cyclist and I'm, uh -huh. I'm, I'm sympathetic to him as a cyclist, but I've never looked at him and thought this man is, is you know, some sort of Adonis, some sort of peak physical specimen. He's a commuter cyclist. Well, yeah. and especially when he's suspended from a zip exactly. line trying to celebrate the, the Olympic <laughs> Games and just sort of up there flailing for help and you're like, this is not... The the I, entire time that you were reading that description, that was exactly the thing, the yeah, mental image I had the entire time you read that description of like the power that is coiled within him. I'm like, I'm just picturing him in, in that stupid little harness with his pants hiked up and his socks at different levels. And he's got a flag in each hand and he's wearing that helmet and his shirt's coming out of his pants and he looks like a complete idiot up there. And he's just like, look at me. Oh, let's make fun of it. And it's just... No, this is this is not this is not Nietzsche's Ubermensch. This is definitely, definitely not Nietzsche's Ubermensch when we're when we're describing. Well, and it's also here. one where you know that you also know that that this man, like uh, what's his name again, uh, Toby Young, yeah. has never actually read no. Nietzsche because Nietzsche's Ubermensch is not this no, thing he's that not. he's describing. Like this guy just sort of like took the the Nazi misunderstanding of Ubermensch hey. and has now applied it to the new prime minister, who I might add was not elected by the people. No, he was like, not. He is now the highest political office in the UK because of an inter an intra party election, an intra party election where a minority Majority of British voters even have a say in the party. Like and the <laughs> last couple of rounds of British elections were the most uh, unrepresentative elections in oh, all of sure. British history. Like the Tories did not have an out and out majority, and yet they have a near supermajority in the parliament yep. when they first won. This is 
such madness. Like, if you think American politics is super broken yeah. with the Electoral College, the British are like neck and neck with oh, us. For but sure. let's, let's continue down to the next paragraph because it gets, it gets no. better. <laughs> so remember, Boris, in, in this scene, Boris is speaking at the highest and like best debate club in the world as far as like this author. And he's what, like 19 years yeah, old? Yeah, pretty much. I think maybe 20. You know, he's, he's a okay. young man. Um, his okay. most strapping. But he, he continues, quote, he, Boris Johnson, began to advance an argument in what sounded like a parody of the high style in British politics. Theatrical, dramatic, self-serious. When, a few seconds in, he appeared to completely forget what he was about to say. <laughs> he looked up, startled, where am I? And asked the packed chamber which side he was supposed to be on. What's the motion anyways? Before anyone could answer, a light bulb appeared above his head and he was off, this time in an even more oratund, florid manner. Yet within a few seconds, he'd wrong-footed himself again, this time because it had suddenly occurred to him that there was an equally compelling argument for the opposite point of view. This endless flipping and flopping, in which he seemed to constantly surprise himself, went on for the next 15 minutes. Holy the impression shit. he gave was of someone who'd been plucked from his bed in the middle of the night and then plonked down at the dispatch box of the Oxford Union without the faintest idea of what he was supposed to be talking about. Now, you could apply that scene to pretty much any time Boris Johnson yeah. speaks in public for whatever his term is. I believe the, the shortest uh, term for a prime minister in Britain is 119 days, and I believe that Boris Johnson <laughs> can be I really, really are do. We, how many Scaramucci's are we talking here? What's the what's the oh over under God. like maybe four or five Scaramucci's? What was that seven? What was his ten like? Days. It, it was ten what seventy two days. days? No. Oh, it's yeah. ten days. Oh God, yeah, that's right. He didn't even make it to yeah, the point no, of like I, officially I mean, getting I'm, the office. <laughs> well, so so Brexit has to happen on October thirty. Okay, so that means he's got so less than come days. hell or high water. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure right after like Brexit happens, he's gonna peace out because he was originally supposed to replace Cameron. Like people wanted him. Yeah. to be the one that took and over after Cameron. And he was smart enough to say, yeah, he was the smart enough to, he was smart enough to say no. Well, um, and apparently uh, his, uh, I guess, quest for fame has yeah. gotten the better of him. But let me, let me uh, continue well, on quick, because he, will, he, was, also he was absolutely the dog that caught the car and has no idea what to deal with it when Brexit actually passed, like the referendum. He did not expect that to happen. Well, he also... He also wrote an entire editorial saying, don't do Brexit. <laughs> and then a week later came out and was like, oh, no, I'm totally in favor of Brexit. When like Nigel Farage somehow bought him off, uh, allegedly. Uh, but anyways, I continue. Uh, quote, I... I'd been to enough union debates at this point to know just how mercilessly the crowd could punish those who came up before them unprepared. That was, that was particularly true of freshmen who were expected to have mastered all of the arcane procedural rules, some of them dating back to the union's founding in 1823. But Boris's chaotic, scatterbrained approach had the opposite effect. The motion was deadly serious. Quote, this house would reintroduce capital punishment. End quote. And almost everything that came out of his mouth produced, provoked gales of laughter. This was no ordinary undergraduate proposing a motion, but a music hall veteran uh, performing a well-rehearsed comic routine. His lack of preparedness seemed less like evidence of his own shortcomings as a debater and more a way of sending up all the other speakers as a way of... Oh, as well as the pomposity of the proceedings. You got the sense that he could have easily delivered a highly effective speech if he wanted to, but was too clever and sophisticated 
and honest to enter into such a silly charade to do what other debaters were doing and pretend that he believed what was coming out of his mouth would have been patronizing. (laughs) Everyone else was taking the audience for fools, but not him. (laughs) He was openly insincere and in being so somehow seemed more authentic than everyone else. So here's the thing is if you end up on the side of like, Hey, we should do capital punishment. And you think that that is a, you know, stupid side to be arguing for, which it, it is. is. You don't have to get up there and do a clown no. routine. You can just get up there and say, this is a stupid thing to be debating. Yeah. Like having been someone who made a career out of like forensic debate and policy debate, you just flip the script on that one and say, I'm not arguing this side. It's unethical and you can't make me do that. Putting on this like dog and pony and clown show to like, try and explain why this is silly and stupid, not really all that good or smart. It really shows his lack of understanding or appreciation of the mm-hmm. audience. It shows that they can't actually be directly engaged with and must be condescended Absolutely. to by entertainment theater. Wow. So the, uh, the author continues, quote, to say I was impressed would be an understatement. Are you- A few years before arriving at Oxford, I had watched the television <laughs> adaptation of Brideshead Revisited. Evelyn Waugh's Oxford novel and had been expecting to meet the modern day equivalents of Sebastian Flight and Anthony Blanche. Larger than life, devil may care aristocrats delivering bon mots in between sips of champagne and spoonfuls of caviar. But the reality was very different. Warm beer, stale sandwiches, and secondhand opinions. Lots of spotty students, all as gosh as me. Less like also gosh, less like gosh. an Oscar Wilde play than a Mike Lee film. Mm-hmm. In Boris, though, it was as if I had finally encountered the real Oxford, the platonic ideal. While the rest of us were works in progress, vainly trying in different personae, Boris was the finished article. He was an instantly recognizable character from the comic traditions of English letters. A pantomime toff. He was Sir Toby Belch in Twelfth Night, demanding more cakes and ale. Bertie Wooster trying to pass himself off as Eustace H. Plimsoll while appearing in court after overdoing it at a boat race night. Yet at the same time, fizzling with vim and vinegar, bursting with spunk as he once put it, which interesting turn of phrase, <laughs> explaining why he needs so many different female partners. He was a cross between Hugh Grant and a no, silverback gorilla. No. Oh, come on. You make it stop. I was holding it in for so long. What the hell is going on? This guy, oh, no. This is seriously this author's ideal, like ideal version of a statesman is this absolute buffoon of a man who is genuinely, like, according to all of the reports that I've read about him so far, he is just totally incompetent and like this charade of being this, you know, oh, look at me. It isn't it so funny that I'm unprepared. It's like, yeah, he has this as a prepared shtick. But when it comes to his actual working in the office, because he was the mayor of London for a time, when it comes to the way he actually runs his office, he is just as disheveled, just as unaware of what the hell's going on around him, just as unprepared and just as much of an idiot in the office as he is at all of these uh, speaking engagements. But in the speaking engagements, he's able to play it off like it's a thing and aren't I so charming and sophisticated because I'm making a buffoon of myself in order to downplay like what's going It's just uh, this guy. How is he the prime minister of the UK? But then again, we have Trump. Oh, yeah. So. No. And it. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting few months for the uh, the British Isle, especially as like the U- the EU has already signaled that they're not going to take oh, any yeah. Boris, any of Boris's crap. And the Scots so, like, are as like, much yeah, as, we're like, out. English conservative. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, and as much as like the English conservatives may be like, yeah, we're down with this, they're not the decision makers no, in this one. Not. Like, England is a, a, sorry, like the UK yeah. rather, is a nuclear power. And like, we keep putting these jokester idiots in charge of nuclear powers. And that seems like just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. But to skip down uh, a couple of paragraphs. So fast forward 36 years and the 55 year old Boris is about to become the prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I am writing this just after the results of the conservative leadership election has been announced and the British constitution is such that the winner of that contest will now automatically be sent for by the queen and invited to form the next government. 10 Tory members of parliament entered the fray six weeks ago and after, after a series of debates and votes, only two remained, Boris and Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary. <clears throat> In less tumultuous times, Hunt, who is regarded as, very as a very dependable, steady Eddie type, might have prevailed. But the view of the conservative party in that extraordinary, is that extraordinary times demand an extraordinary leader. <laughs> and few moments in the UK's history have been as messy as this. Yep. <laughs> now, he, the, the author goes on to sort of like set the context by talking about... It's true. He is definitely an extraordinary yeah, leader, but yeah, continue. But uh, the author goes on to describe sort of some of the context and talks about, you know, how May ended up with a job when David Cameron got his bluff called by saying, oh, yes, we'll, we'll have a vote on leave just to sort of shore up the, the you know, yeah. paleoconservatives in his party and didn't think that, that Brexit could possibly actually happen uh, and then kind of keeps going on. But he, he continues, quote, one of the reasons Boris won by a majority of two to one is that he has been unequivocal about his intention to take Britain out of the EU by October 31st, which, by the way, isn't his effing choice. Like the EU has said that is the drop dead deadline. Yeah. So the, the author's already pretending that like this is Boris's choice when it's not. The EU has been like, we've delayed it twice. We're not going to do that anymore. Y'all are going to get stuck with like some really shitty border conditions come October 31st. Best of luck with the Northern Irish hard border. Anyways. Quote, there is hope that, the, that this tough stance will force the EU to return to the negotiating table and offer some major concessions, thereby enabling Boris to get a new deal through Parliament before the deadline. By the way, as soon as, like, literally two minutes after Boris Johnson was announced as the PM, the EU released a statement saying, we're not negotiating, October 31st is the deadline. Quote, <laughs> But there's a risk that the EU won't improve its offer, at least not sufficiently, in which case Boris will have to make good on his no-deal threat. Again, it's not Boris's threat. It's going to be a no-deal. Like, it's either May's deal gets voted through before October 31st, or it's a no-deal. And Boris has said he's not taking May's deal back, so he doesn't have a lot of negotiating yeah, room no. great, great uh, because plan, the EU is yeah. not giving it to him. Great and again... Plan. He's not like, it, it's like when you ride Mr. Toad's wild ride and you try and turn the wheel, but it doesn't do anything. And that's Boris Johnson in the UK. Yep, very much so. Uh, now, quote, that in turn, quote, that in turn could trigger a constitutional crisis. As things stand, a vote of parliament isn't required before Britain can leave the EU. Our departure on October 31st is the default legal position and remains to be unless the prime minister asks for another extension. But pro-Remain MPs have been frantically scheming away, trying to think of ways to obstruct a no-deal Brexit. And they have an ally in John Burkow, the speaker of the House of Commons, who's proved willing to bend the rules to make the life of Brexiteers more difficult. Within, the, within 
weeks of Boris Johnson entering Downing Street, possibly days, we could see an impasse in which the executive and legislative branch of Britain's parliamentary de democracy are at loggerheads. In that case, it would be unclear where authority lies. And unless Boris can figure out a way to break the deadlock, there would almost certainly be another election, which is exactly what folks are counting on. Like, I think that's one reason... Boris is going up oh, yeah. as the sacrificial Absolutely. cow here is that he's going to have to go up against Corbyn <laughs> in the next 60 days. And Corbyn's going to like clean his clock because people don't want to leave the EU. No. They've suddenly realized what this means. Uh, it's it, especially for young people. Like if there's yeah. a chance to undo Brexit, they will undo Brexit yeah. and they will do it before October 31st. And it will hopefully be the death of the conservative party for a very long One time because this is absolute madness. It really is. And so it's worth worth uh, really noting, just for anyone who has no idea who Boris Johnson is, like one of the things that he initially got famous for was that he was writing all of these columns about these crazy things that the EO, EU was apparently doing. And the, the editors from other newspapers were like, hey, talking to the reporters, like, hey, why are you not reporting on this stuff? And then the reporters just turned around and were like, we're not reporting on it because he's making this shit up. Like he's just fabricating stories yep. and blaming all of these things on the EU that are not true and getting them published because he has no, he has no ethical standards whatsoever and neither the people that employ him. Thank you, conservative party. No, and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute because Toby Johnson does oh, talk no. about Boris Johnson's, like, because he was a journalist. Okay, keep going. Uh, and he lost multiple jobs for just lying in print. But before oh, yeah. we get there, uh, we'll move on to the next section, which is entitled, quote, a Marmite figure. <laughs> Boris is often described as a Marmite figure, a reference to a salty brown waxy substance that some British people like to smear on their toast. You either love Marmite or you hate it. And the same goes for Boris Johnson. Just as some sections of America's coastal elites suffer from Trump derangement syndrome, large swaths of the UK's intelligentsia are afflicted by Boris derangement syndrome. So a lot to unpack there. I especially like the, the whole coastal elites thing um, because it's such an idiotic phrase when you look at human history and geography because people settle along the coasts because uh, that's where trade happens. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Like, it, it's not like rich people just go to the coast because they like the coast more. It's because that's where the economic engine is. That's, that's why all of the major cities around the world, including London, <laughs> are on trade routes. Like, the River Thames is a trade route. It was, like, they didn't just randomly put, you know, Londinium there for no reason. The, the, the Romans settled that city because they're like, yo, this big river, that can, we, we can put a lot of boats up and down. Seems like a good place to have a big city. Uh, the next paragraph... Uh, quote, he has certainly engaged in some pretty egregious behavior during his climb to Britain. Sorry. He has certainly engaged in some pretty greasy. Sorry, let me start again. <laughs> quote, he has certainly engaged in some pretty egregious behavior during his climb up Britain's greasy pole, uh, which great phrase, uh, a litany of sins <laughs> that would be wait, enough. Wait. <laughs> That's literally what they call it. Like climbing the corporate ladder is instead climbing the greasy pole. I think this guy calls oh it that. Um, I'm, I've never heard it used that way, but... <laughs> Quote, a litany of sins that would be enough to end the careers of less uh, gifted politicians, which is a really interesting <laughs> way of saying he's scandal pledged, yeah. but that just hasn't taken him down. Uh, uh, quote, he was sacked from his first job as a news trainee on the Times of London in 1998 when he was caught making up a quote. <laughs> 
he went on to become the Brussels correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, hey. where many of his stories about the U about the EU's harebrained bureaucratic uh, bureaucratic directives, new regula regulations governing the curvature of bananas, for instance, <laughs> fell under the heading of too good to check. So this is what you were talking about when he just made stuff up. Hold on. It, but here's the thing is, after making up quotes and getting fired, after making up stories and getting fired, quote, he landed the editorship of The Spectator yes. in 1999 <laughs> at the age of 35 and tried to combine that with embarking on a political career, becoming uh, a member of parliament for Henley in 2001. A twin track approach that the magazine's proprietor, Conrad Black, described as trying to ride two horses at once. Oh, fuck. <laughs> this eventually came so to a fun. head when stories began to circulate that he was having an affair with Petronella Wyatt, which, oh my God. Why? Petronella, why? Wasn't that one of the... One uh, of the she was the spectator. Yes, one of his staff. Yeah, she was the, the deputy editor yeah. at The Spectator. Quote, Boris was on to his second marriage at this point and had been appointed the conservative shadow arts spokesman. So this was a potential scandal. When asked by Michael Howard, the leader of the party, whether the rumors were true, Boris described them as, quote, an invented pyramid of piffle. In fact, they were true. It turned out Petronella had become pregnant and then had an abortion, and Boris was fired by Howard for being less than forthright about wow. it. And yeah, that says a lot about him. Oh my God. Um, I'm so absolutely just blown away by this. Uh, now, it goes on uh, for several more paragraphs talking about some of the things that he said, uh, including this, this one kind of caught my eye. So uh, dropping down a few paragraphs, quote, even by less racially sensitive standards of our times, this was inflammatory stuff. But Boris claimed to be satirizing neocolonialism rather than expressing oh. neocolonialist sentiments himself oh. and got away oh. with it. His references to watermelon smiles no. and pickaninnies no. didn't stop him winning in a city that is 55% non-white. Oh this was his winning the mayorship in London. Quote, his Critics still bring up these and other quotes at every opportunity, oh as they should. God. Last year, in another Telegraph column, he compared niqab-wearing Muslim women to letterboxes and bank robbers, yet the what? mud never sticks. Now, maybe what? the mud doesn't stick because he's got a lot of money and he's sort of an aristocratic bumbling fool and can just continue to run through the scandal. In Toby Johnson's opinion, quote, this is partly because the line between sincerity and insincerity is always so blurry. <laughs> he is never fully in earnest, so can always wiggle out of taking responsibility for whatever it is that, that's upset no. people. Sometimes he apologizes, but always with a mischievous glint in his eye. The Irish journalist Finnitan O'Toole wrote about the sleight of hand in a blisteringly, in, un, sorry, in a blisteringly, unsympathetic profile for the New York Review of Books, saying the anthropologist Kate Fox, in her classic study, Watching the English, suggests that a crucial role of the national discourse is what she calls the importance of not being earnest. <laughs> Quote, at the most basic level, an underlying rule in all English conversation mm -hmm. is the prescription of earnestness. Mm -hmm. End quote. Johnson is played on this to perfection. He knows that millions of his compatriots would rather go along with his outrageous fabrications than be accused of the ultimate sin of taking things too seriously. Or, or Toby, maybe they're just fucking racist. Like, maybe it's not that they don't take it earnestly. It's maybe they hear the dog whistle and they think it's yeah. good. But I like this idea of, no, it's all a big mm -hmm. joke and pretending you're not in on the joke is really oh, what's getting Boris yeah, Johnson elected. No. It is just absolutely ridiculous. 
Uh, he continues on for several more paragraphs, kind of going through please. some more stuff, and then he ends on an Orwell quote. Because hey. Why the hell not go on an on an Orwell quote? Uh, but for his complete his concluding series of uh, paragraphs, we'll we'll go ahead and read these in earnest. This section is entitled "Cometh the Man." No. Quote, having said all that, mm-hmm. it's still quite a leap to think that the right man to lead Britain during this period of national crisis is Sancho Panza. Can the clown prince what? conquer his Falstaffian urges and discover his inner home serious? Can Hal become Henry V? The most damning indictment of Boris is the two years he spent as foreign secretary under Theresa May, his highest political office to date. He shouldn't have accepted the job since it made him complicit in May's failings, although he did resign in 2018 when the shape of her deal with the EU became clear. But having done so, he should have applied himself more assiduously. He wasn't an unqualified disaster. Eh, it depends on your opinion. <laughs> but he often seemed to take his eye off the ball. For instance, <laughs> in his appearance before a House of Commons committee, he said of a British woman who had been arrested in Iran that she'd, quote, simply been teaching people journalism. The Iranian Whoa, authorities had no. accused her of spying, and her defense was that she was in the country visiting relatives, so Boris's remarks weren't helpful. No. She remains in prison yeah. to this day. And Toby, like, very helpfully leaves out the fact that, Boris's jo- that Boris Johnson's remarks are directly responsible for keeping her yeah. in jail. Like, they've been cited yeah. by the Iranian authorities as evidence that she was and lying. And it was his job so, to try to get her out of jail because... He was the that was literally his job as the foreign secretary. He was supposed to be doing all of these international relations. Like basically it's the secretary of state, right? So that's yep, that's exactly. what his role was supposed to be. And that whole buffoonish cartoon character sitting in front of the podium uh, regaling uh, Toby here uh, uh, at this uh, this parliamentary discussion uh, practice session. That's exactly the same person who showed up and was supposed to be conducting diplomatic relations with other countries, including the EU. And the reason why he had to step down was because he had just made a complete ass of himself over and over and over again. He proved to be utterly incompetent at being the the foreign secretary and therefore couldn't be the foreign secretary. It's not that this was like he did himself some disservice by by doing this job and being unprepared for it. It's that no, he just showed that he is utterly incompetent and incapable of any kind of serious responsibilities and did it over and over again. And he's part of the reason why this woman is still locked up and being charged with espionage because he's an idiot who doesn't know how to think before he speaks. Yep. Uh, As Toby continues in his next paragraph, and this one's going to be fun to talk about also, uh, quote, his stint as mayor of London, by contrast, was a triumph. He cut the murder rate in half, reduced traffic fatalities, embarked on an ambitious house building program, (sighs) introduced a popular rent-a-bike scheme, and presided over the barnstormingly successful 2012 Olympics. So we're going to stop here. (laughs) And uh, A, he didn't single-handedly cut the murder rate in Britain. Uh, That is absolute BS and is largely attributable to different policing tactics and uh, an increased economy uh, from a lot more trade through the EU. Uh, Reducing traffic fatalities, like, I'll actually grant him that one. Like, he 
was a big advocate for cycling. Yes. He was a big advocate for um, getting cars out of London, but even that wasn't done by him by no, himself. His house building program was a little bit bullshit because that also included uh, updates on a lot of the public housing estates like Grenfell. These were yeah. done below code and unsafe. And 80 why. people yep. burned to death in Grenfell yep. Tower because they tried to cut corners on this. Now, when it comes to the Olympics, you know, y'all know that we're fans of no yes, Olympics. And the 2012 Olympics built the largest security state ever, yep. are largely seen as a disaster by people who live in the UK and especially live in London, priced out millions of people. Yes, like did. London city center is now one of the largest money laundering operations in the planet because the real estate has gotten so expensive. It's owned by... Uh, non-UK oligarchs and billionaires who basically launder money into expensive flats and houses there that they don't live in. Uh, rental prices, home prices have gone through the roof, and there's been a massive, massive displacement from people who used to live in working class, or what were firm, formerly working class neighborhoods in London that were all upzoned and upscaled for the Olympics. Or just so torn down entirely the, and turned into housing sentence, for the athletes. Like, the, the entire east end of London yep. was ripped apart by the Olympics. Well, and then that housing was sold at a premium yeah. to uh, foreign yeah. investors and turned into housing that people can't Correct. afford. Uh, as Toby continues, quote, the key difference between his, uh, sorry, the key difference between his morality and his two years at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office is that he was a baton-wielding conductor at City Hall, but a member of the orchestra in Theresa May's cabinet. Uh, Boris has never been good at playing second fiddle. <laughs> He's an alpha. Something oh, no. that's been apparent from no, a very no, early no, age. No, 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 no. Hold on. Wait. No, no, no. Wait. Wait, we have a very heartwarming anecdote about his family coming up, and you're going to no. love it. Quote, his sister Rachel once told me that at her fifth grade party, she stood up on a table to make a speech, and the six-year-old Boris, furious that she was getting all the attention, leapt up beside her, pushed her aside, and gave a speech of his own. What a little shit. Oh, that's my psych God. Psycho. Like, that's insane behavior right there. Like, that is like... That is some narcissistic oh, uh, personality disorder. Like your sister's having a birthday, you let her have the birthday. Uh, but no, no, Boris Johnson, he was too alpha <laughs> to allow his five-year-old sister to give a speech <laughs> at her own birthday. Uh, oh, no, well, now stop. that he has given Theresa May Please the elbow. Stop. My hope is that he will recover the focus he displayed no. as mayor, which I think it's funny that he gave Theresa May the elbow no, he didn't. because she resigned. Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> like, he didn't do anything here. Uh, he was just like the next idiot in line and I guess won that one at a rather high margin, I think, because a lot of people that voted in the conservative party were stupid enough to believe we're going to get the best deal rhetoric. Like, he basically played Trump's playbook again. It's the best deal, And folks. people responded. They're going to build it. They're going to pay for the wall. Yep. They're going to pay for it all. Like, no, you're completely full of shit. Everybody, everybody should see that by now. Like how, how do we have so these gonna, people running the most powerful countries in the planet? Like this is insane. Money, 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 money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to roll through these last four Please paragraphs. So bear clip. with me because no. this is going to take a minute. Yeah. 
But, uh, quote, Britain's veteran political commentators are, for the most part, pessimistic about Boris's premiership. His lack of parliamentary majority, the Byzantine complexity of Brexit, trying to win over the soggy center while being flanked by Farage, all of this adds up to a grim reality check that could see him being the shortest-lived prime minister in the UK's history. The record is held by George Canning, who lasted 119 mm-hmm. days. But when another prime minister who, who entered Downing Street at a moment of national crisis with the odds stacked against him. When Churchill succeeded Chamberlain in 1940, most oh, no. members of the establishment thought no. he'd embarked on a foolhardy course. What hope did Britain have of holding out against the might of the Nazi war machine? Yet he overcame those doubts about his leadership, in part because he succeeded in bending the will of reality to his own. In politics, there are few fixed parameters. Everything is fluid and uncertain, with too many variables for the human brain to compute. What is considered completely impossible one week becomes possible the next. Through sheer force of personality, <laughs> Churchill was able to change the narrative and persuade people that military defeat wasn't inevitable. He did this by using the same alchemy that was attributed to Steve Jobs, a reality distortion field. It's a superpower possessed by those rare individuals that come along once in a generation, combining a bottomless self-belief, exceptional no. cognitive ability, and spellbinding charisma. Boris is one of those people. The rational part of my brain is still full of doubts and uncertainties. What sensible person could look at Boris's parapetic career and rackish personality and conclude that he is the right man to lead Britain at this moment of maximum danger? But at a more primitive level, a more impervious, sorry, but at a more primitive level, a level impervious to reason, I cannot help but believe from the first moment Mm -hmm. I saw him, I felt I was in the presence of someone special, someone capable of achieving great things. And I've never quite been able to dispel that impression. The... The next three months between now and October 31st will reveal whether that was a historical premonition or a sophomoric illusion. Well, you know what? Toby Young, Toby Young is a credulous moron, and I've got a bridge in No, 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 no. You know Brooklyn. what? I'm London like, Bridge. He's screwing up this joke. I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell him. No, London Bridge was bought and moved to Lake Havasu, Arizona. I have a bridge in Lake Havasu, Arizona I will sell him. <laughs> and it's amazing, because like to go back to that Churchill paragraph, this guy's like, an idiot. the EU to the Nazis is a pretty fucking bold move. And like, say Saying that Churchill was able to do this oh by bending God. the like reality to his will is amazing because we know before Churchill ever got into office, he had the American war machine on his side. He had resistance in France on his side. He had oh, the Scandinavian sure. countries that hadn't fallen on his side. At this point in time, the U.S. isn't really on Britain's side. We can't be. We do too much trade with the EU. And you know who's on the EU side more than Britain's side? Effing China. Like, the largest trade partner that Britain and the EU have has already thrown in with the EU because they understand that we want large trade blocks, that that's an easier way to move goods and services across large land masses. Britain is an island, and an island without a lot of manufacturing capability, and when you have a strong, strong pound, exporting stuff becomes really freaking hard. 
it's also going to be impossible to just send trade back and yeah. forth between like the Irish hard egg or the Irish hard border. Like that one could literally risk another civil war. And I don't yeah. think it will. Like, I don't think we're going to see an Irish it civil could, war coming absolutely. out of it, but to pretend that the, that the Northern Irish situation is a minor one when there's billions of pounds worth of trade and billions of euros worth of trade that are imperiled by that hard border. That's going to start on November 1st is absolute madness. But, I like how, you know, with Toby Young, and this, this I think applies to a lot of Trump believers also, where they're like, I can't rationally tell you why I like him. I just, in my gut, in my amygdala, in the, the lizard part of my brain, he really speaks to me. And it's like, you know, we've spent a lot of time, like several thousand years, evolving away from that part of our brain, like developing higher reason, democratic structures, yeah. uh, rules of society yeah. and civic engagement so that mm -hmm. we're not ruled by our lizard nature. And here we are going back to that where like because, Boris Johnson yeah. is straight screwed come October 31st. The EU said, we're not dealing with you. Either take May's deal or it's a no exit. Jeremy Corbyn has signaled that he's ready to come up with a no confidence vote to uh, signal that nobody trusts Boris Johnson, that they want to have another vote on Brexit and bring it to the people again. And I'm really hoping that'll happen. Like there's still a chance to pull this one out of the fire, but if Boris Johnson is going to be in, as intransigent as he's proven, he is going down in flames. He is going to be a historical footnote. He is going to be a laughing stock. And there's a reason that yeah. like being mayor of London wasn't the epitome of his career and why the highest office that he ever held, you know, being the foreign secretary is seen as a failure. And Toby Johnson spends a lot of time in this piece explaining why we shouldn't care about Boris Johnson failing at being foreign secretary. So I, I anticipate, you know, probably the first week of November, Toby Young is going to produce a piece for us explaining why we shouldn't hold this massive failure against Boris Johnson. And the fact that he was literally just carried out of 10 Downing Street and pelted with tomatoes by the common folk should be seen as a triumph and not a failure. Oh, that would be so... Yeah, so thank you for so uh, for uh, yeah. sticking with us on this rather long <sighs> reading group. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed my dramatic readings, but I really like... Yeah. Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, like as laughable <laughs> as these figures are, like they're legitimate dangers to people. And as we... You know, if you didn't like Absolutely. Children of Men, the documentary, you're really going to hate Children of Men, the reality. And that's really <laughs> where Britain under Boris Johnson is going. So, like, oh, no. as much as I want to laugh at this, it's really a sardonic yeah, and a dark kind of gallows I, humor. I, I do watch uh, so, again, you know, as we round this one out, we have a yeah. chance to fix this. And it's not in the, the, like, most exciting, sexy way. But getting out and knocking some doors in the valley and then getting, like, yourself a new pair of sneakers, getting ready to knock some doors in 2020, getting ready to do some phone banking and text banking to really fill every level of our government in California and send as many people to the federal level of government that are progressive as we can is going to be key to writing the ship. You know, we have 18 months to peak fossil fuel production, 18 months. And then we have to begin cutting and hit zero car zero net carbon emissions by 2050. We're not on track to do that, but we can get on track to do that. But we have really got to seize the levers of power in order to do that. So I really hope you do that with us because I don't want to be reading more quillettes 100%. about how Don Jr. is now like going to become the triumphant governor of California. Like I just, oh, I, I just, I don't have it in me. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> No. 
Uh, so, yes, as always, if you have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org or visit our Facebook page and send us a message there. Or, you know, just send us an email over at podcast at groundgamela.org. Uh, thank you very much once again for listening to us. Uh, this is a ton of fun, and yeah, it's, I it's fun, do this man. And you, Bushido, man, that was a fun article. Yeah, I, to I told you it was bad for your health. You're gonna have to go get a checkup now. But as has become my new saying, mm. rise up, fuck that shit. Catch y'all next week. Hell yeah, see ya.